listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Welcome once again to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad that you're with us this morning to worship and study the word. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter is one of the New Testament letters written by the Apostle Peter. We're currently in a study right now where we are studying verse by verse and chapter by chapter through First and Second Peter. Our study is called Pilgrim's Progress because in this study or in this book, Peter talks so much about how we are pilgrims in this world. We are sojourners who are on a mission. So that's what we've been talking about, Pilgrim's Progress in this study. So if you're needing to know where's First Peter, you're struggling to find it, feel free to be bold and use that table of contents in the front of your Bible or you could just flip around in the New Testament until you find Hebrews. It's a bigger book in your New Testament. And then go two books to the right. So Hebrews, James, 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're using your phone, then it's even easier for you. You just go in there, type it in, 1 Peter chapter 3. If you are looking for a good app to use for your phone for the Bible, we put all of our notes that are up on the screen and more, and including our study guide for our community groups up in the YouVersion Bible app. If you sign in there, go to the menu, go to events, and then you'll see us in there and you can click on that and you can have the study guide for the week and you can interact with stuff, share things with friends. It's a great way to uh, interact with the message as you hear it. So 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, let's begin by reading the first seven verses. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask this morning as we turn our attention to it, as we listen to it, as we study it and read it, Lord, would you speak to us through it? Would you speak to issues in our lives, Lord, that you want to address, and would you give us ears to hear? Give us receptive hearts, Lord, to your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, looks can be deceiving, right? Have you ever noticed that, that looks can be deceiving? Uh, There are some things which look terrible on the outside, And then they turn out to be pretty good, even though they look terrible. And on the other hand, right, there are other things that look amazing, but then when you get below the surface, they're actually awful. So for example, like I was thinking about fruit this week, so I have an example about fruit. Passion fruit, have you ever seen a passion fruit? Um, It's gross, right? It kind of looks like, if I were gonna describe it, I'd say, it looks like somebody cut off your finger and inside your finger, it was just full of pus and maggots right? And that's a passion fruit. That's what it looks like. You can see that in here. Uh, Someone else described it as looking like a larva covered in mucus. But on the other hand, right, it's 
delicious, right? It tastes great when you eat it. Just don't look at it or else you'll be grossed out. Uh, on the other hand, there's this other fruit, an Asian fruit called the durian. So you can kind of get these every now and then at like Whole Foods or like specialty food stores. But in a lot of places, they're banned. Did you know that? Like, can you imagine banning a fruit, right? This fruit is banned in Singapore, right? They ban a lot of things, but this fruit is banned in Singapore. It is illegal to take one of these on public transit in Singapore. Here's why. Because on the outside, they look like a lot of other tropical fruits. They look kind of like a cross between a pineapple. It's like the size of a softball, right? It looks like a pineapple a little bit. And inside it has this soft edible fruit in the center. But like I said, they've been banned. And the reason they've been banned is because they, once you open up the shell, they have this awful smell. It's been described as uh, smelling like rotting flesh or raw sewage. And there are communities in Indonesia where people eat these things kind of because they have to, right? Like it's a sustenance and they grow all over the place. But even the people who eat them say, yeah, I mean, they, they'll keep you alive, but they taste like, I liked how one person described it. They said, it tastes like kissing your dead grandmother, right? So if that's what you're interested in doing, then you should definitely get one of those. So looks can be deceiving, um, this is true in other areas of life as well. How many of you, and please don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever met somebody who was beautiful on the outside, but on the inside was ugly? I think we've all experienced that before. It's been said that beauty is only skin deep, but ugliness cuts to the bone. But is that true? Honestly, is that true? That beauty is only skin deep? Is it true that ugliness is more pervasive, it's deeper than beauty? I would say no. I would say not necessarily. Here in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter's going to talk about where true beauty comes from and what true beauty is and how we can cultivate true beauty in our lives and in our hearts and in a way that doesn't decrease over time but in a way that grows and increases over time. And Peter seats this discussion about beauty and inner beauty in a conversation about marriage. He seats this discussion in a conversation about marriage. And in this section, he's going to give some practical advice for a thriving marriage, some practical guidelines for a thriving marriage. So whether you are here today, whether you're married or not, I want to just let you know that in these verses, God has a lot to say to all of us. So I encourage us to, to receive it wherever you're at in life in regard to the topic of marriage and all these things. So the title of today's message is Unfading Beauty, Unfading Beauty. And there are three things that Peter points out to us in this section. He shows us that we have an opportunity, we have a calling, and God has a plan. So we have an opportunity and a calling and God has a plan. Here's what those are. An opportunity to live out the gospel, a calling to cultivate inner beauty, and a plan for a thriving marriage. So an opportunity to live out the gospel, a calling to cultivate inner beauty, and a plan for a thriving marriage. The first thing we see is an opportunity. Notice how he begins in verse one of chapter three. He uses this word. He says, likewise. Likewise. Now look down at verse seven. What does he say there? How does he begin that verse? With the same word, likewise. So two times he says likewise. One time he says it to wives. Another time he said it to husbands. He says likewise wives. And then later on he says likewise husband. So when we see that word likewise, we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves like what, right? Like what? What is he referring to? What is he comparing it to? He's referring something to something that came right before this actually. And that was at the end of chapter two, which we studied last week. 
in chapter two, starting in verse 21, he tells us this, Jesus Christ left you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. And then Peter goes on to describe for us what that example was, what that pattern was that Jesus left for us to follow. And, And here's what it was. It was that Jesus laid down his life in loving service. Jesus lived his life, even went to the cross in complete submission to the will of the Father. He laid down his will and did what the Father called him to do. And now Peter's saying, likewise, Remember the gospel. He says, look at the gospel. Remember Jesus. Now, likewise. In other words, he's calling us to live this out. It's an opportunity to live out the gospel. Throughout this letter, Peter has been calling us who are Christians to live as sojourners on a mission. Sojourners on a mission. We're sojourners in the sense that this world is not our home, right? We long for a better home. Our hope is not seated in this world. Our hope is seated in the world which is to come, the place where things will be truly right, right? We know that we, through Jesus, we become children of God. And one day, our Father is going to take us to that place he has prepared for us where all things will be right. That is where our hope lies. There's nothing on earth that can change that or take it away from it. take us away from it. There's nothing that can touch it, right? It's secure in heaven, kept for us. We have that hope of heaven. So we are sojourners in this world, but we're not sojourners only. Beyond that, we're sojourners on a mission. We're sojourners on a mission. During the time that we're here on earth, God doesn't want us to just bide our time and wait to get out of here. No, he has a purpose with your life. There are ways that he wants to work in and through your life to accomplish his work through you in the world to other people. See, Jesus was the greatest example of what it looked like to be a sojourner on a mission, right? That's what Jesus was. He knew this world's not my home. I'm here on a mission. I'm here on assignment. And he lived his life that way. And we're called to do the same. At the end of chapter two, Peter reminded us of the gospel. He reminded us of what Jesus did for us to save us and redeem us and bring us into a relationship with God. And now here in chapter three, he begins by saying, remember the gospel? Now, likewise, Wives, likewise, husbands. In other words, what Jesus has done for you, you have an opportunity to live that out. As Jesus has loved you, despite your flaws, despite your your faults and your failures, you have the opportunity to love other people now in spite of their flaws, in spite of their failures, in spite of their sins. As Jesus has forgiven you, you now get the privilege of extending that forgiveness to other people in your life. You get to forgive them for how they've sinned against you. It's a privilege, just as Jesus has spoken truth into your life, you get that loving privilege of lovingly and kindly speaking truth into other people's lives so that they can be transformed as well. See, Peter's gonna talk about a specific context, though, in which we have the opportunity to live this out, and that is the context of marriage. But I wanna say this at the outset. Marriage is one context in which we get to live this out, but it's not the only context, right? If you are not married, that you can still do this, right? You're still called to do this. In every area of your life, you have an opportunity to live out the gospel every single day, to love people in the ways that God has loved you. So you might ask, if this is just one context for this, 
then why talk about it specifically? Why talk about marriage specifically in this regard? There are two reasons I'm gonna tell you. Number one is because marriage is a relevant relationship. Marriage is a relevant relationship. Statistically, 91% of people in the United States will be married at some point in their life. 91%. That is the vast majority of people in the United States, and it's true across the world, the vast majority of people will be married at some point in their lives. But not everybody, right? So this is an incredibly relevant relationship, but it's also uh, an incredibly unique relationship. So marriage is a unique relationship. How so? Well, one reason is because in marriage, think about it, you experience all of the dynamics of, of different relationships all rolled into your relationship with one person, right? You experience the full spectrum, so to say, of relational dynamics in a relationship with one person and that relationship is amplified. Everything is amplified in that relationship. In marriage with your spouse, you experience a full range of of these relational dynamics, right? So when you're married to a person, that relationship, you experience the dynamic of friendship, right? You, You are friends with that person. But beyond that, you also experience like a family dynamic because they become your family and you have to be family with their family. So you, you experience a family dynamic and a friendship dynamic. There's also the idea that as you manage money and property and things together, you're like business partners who have to work together to, to manage money and things. There is a work dynamic, right? Like you're like coworkers. You're responsible for getting things done, maybe with children or in your house or whatever, but it's that same kind of relationship you have with colleagues. So all these different relationships that we experience in life, in marriage, they're all conglomerated into this one kind of ultimate relationship. And I would say that, that marriage, in a way, is the ultimate relationship experience that we have here on earth. In marriage, we experience this full range of dynamics all wrapped into one person. And because of that, everything is amplified in a marriage, right? So the highs are higher, but the lows are also lower. It's everything's amplified. Because this person, why? Because this person is all up in your business all the time. They never go away. The only thing that's similar to it is like a cage match, right? Like where you can't get away. Except this person's supposed to be on your team, hopefully, right? Everybody else in your life, you can keep at arm's length. You can manage them. You can control how much they know about you and what they see about you. But you can't do that with your spouse. And they're just always there, right? They're just always there. And there's this sense in which your spouse oftentimes knows you better than you know yourself. Do you realize that? Your spouse probably knows you better than you know yourself. Here's why. First of all, because none of us really know ourselves as well as we think we do. We have an incredible capacity for self-deception. But our spouse is standing there on the outside and they're looking at us and they're saying, well, I know that you think this about yourself, but I'm standing right here. I can see you. Like I I know all of your greatest fears. I know all of your greatest weaknesses. I also know your strengths. They're always there. They're always observing you all the time. And that's why married couples, spouses, have the ability to hurt each other more than anyone else in the entire world. They have the ability to hurt you more than anyone else in the entire world. They also have the ability to affirm you more than anyone else in the entire world. See, everything's amplified. Because for someone to really get to know you, warts and all, and then choose to love you, well, that's one of the greatest feelings in the world. But on the other hand, for someone to really get to know you and then reject you, or to really get to know you and then use, exploit your vulnerabilities and weaknesses against you, 
I think that's one of our greatest fears that we have in this life. It's one of the most painful, damaging, hurtful things that a person can even possibly experience. And throughout the Bible, marriage is talked about as being a picture of who God is and how he loves his people. God calls himself, for example, in the Old Testament, he calls himself the husband of his people. In the New Testament, he refers to his people as his bride and he's the groom. And the culmination of all of his plans for all of the world will be a wedding in which God will be united. He will marry his people. See, marriage is a picture of how God loves. He knows you fully and yet he loves you completely. It's the thing that we've always dreamed of and desired in our heart of hearts. He knows you fully, and yet he loves you completely. He knows all your flaws. He's seen you at your very worst. He knows even those thoughts that you have, and yet he chooses to love you and through loving you to make you beautiful. See, here's what's important for us to understand. It wasn't that, you know, over time, people like developed this idea or invented this idea of marriage. And then God looked at that and said, oh, hey, that was cool that you guys invented this thing where you're married to each other. You know what that's a lot like. That's a lot like how I love people. So I'll just, you know, adopt that model and say, hey, do you know that thing you guys do with marriage? That's how I love people too. No, it wasn't that way at all. We have to think about it a different way. What we see is that God actually invented marriage And he invented it with a purpose. Do you know where the first marriage is found in the Bible? It's found in the creation story, like Genesis chapter one. Like it doesn't get any more OG than that, right? Genesis chapter one, very beginning, creation story. God creates a man and a woman, and then there's the first marriage. And it's found in chapter one and in chapter two. He talks about it in the creation story two times. It's part of creation. In other words, marriage isn't something that developed over time or evolved as if we, we used to be like animals, just like mating with everybody we could until one day we decided to put that behind us and move and develop monogamy. No, not at all. The Bible describes that from the beginning, this is the way it was. This was God's design. It's part of our original design and creation. And not just that, it's one of the ways that we're created in the image of God, in the image of God. So you might ask, how does marriage reflect God's image? Well, God designed marriage, again, from the beginning to be a reflection of who he is and an acting out between two people of who God is and how he loves. So it's this acting out between two people of who God is and how he loves. We get to know someone fully and love them completely. You get to be faithful to them as God is faithful. You get to forgive as God forgives and shows grace. And, and pointing, you know, after pointing us to Jesus here, Peter, after pointing us to how Jesus lived in the world as a sojourner on a mission, how he submitted to the will of the Father, how he laid down his life in loving service to us, Peter now says, likewise. Likewise, wives. Likewise, husbands. Go and do likewise. So we'll get into what that was first, but understand this. In marriage, but not just in marriage, in our relationships, we have the opportunity to respond to the gospel by living it out towards other people. So the next thing we have is we have a calling, a calling to cultivate inner beauty, 
cultivating inner beauty. Peter addresses wives first, and here's what he says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So some, some historical context might be helpful here. Uh, Peter is writing to Christians in the year 64 AD. He's writing to Christians who at this time were going through a lot of difficulties and a lot of hardships. And as Peter is going through his letter, he is addressing many of those situations directly. For example, last week we looked at, you know, they were being persecuted by the governing authorities at that time. And so Peter talks to them about how they should relate to people in positions of power, how they should relate to authorities and governments. Well, another area of difficulty and hardship for some of these Christians, it seems, is that there were a lot of women at this time, a lot of Christians in the early church, who were women who were married to men who were not believers, who were not Christians. They were married to men who didn't share their faith. So these women had heard the gospel, they had responded, they had put their faith in Jesus, they were pursuing him and walking with him, but their husbands did not join them in doing that. And they, their husbands might have said something like, hey, look, if you want to do that, fine, you know, I, I don't care, go for it, but I'm not interested, so I'm not going to join you. Now, this was a pretty common and widespread thing, apparently, in the early church. We know that because Paul the Apostle also talks about this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He addresses women who are married to men who are not believers, and so uh, this was obviously a widespread issue for Christians at this time. And it is also a widespread Christ uh, issue for many Christians in our time as well. People who want to follow Jesus, but their spouse is not on the same page with them, not walking with them in the same way. Maybe some of you, that's your situation that you're here today. You're married to someone who doesn't share your desire to actively walk with God. Maybe it was after you got married that you really responded to the gospel and, and embraced the gospel and started following Jesus and your spouse was like, hey, no, I've, I'm not interested. Or maybe you started out in marriage walking together down the same path, wanting the same things, wanting to pursue God together but at some point, something changed for your spouse and your spouse is no longer interested, no longer active. Maybe they no longer even believe. That's a difficult situation. And if that's you, I just wanna address you right now and say this. Let me say that we honor you. We honor you for the difficulty that you face in that situation every day. And we pray for you. I pray for you that God would give you strength to walk with him and to not get discouraged as you face that challenge. But when we talk about marriage, you know, this can be a very touchy subject, right? Because there are so many of us who are in a situation that is not like this ideal picture of marriage. And let me just say from the outset, there are no perfect marriages because there are no perfect people. Marriage is always messy. Every marriage is messy. And maybe there's some of you, you've been uh, divorced. Maybe you're separated at the moment. Maybe your spouse isn't here right now because they're not walking with God. Wherever you're at in this regard, let me just say this. We're not here to shame you at all. We're not here to make you feel bad about your past. What we're here to do, we're here to fight for your future, okay? And so I love what Peter does here. That's what he does with these women. He says, you know what? What, however you end up in the situation, we're here to fight for your future. And here's what he does. He gives them a strategy for evangelism. He says, you who have come to know Jesus, here's how you can be part. Here's how you can actively be part of winning over your husband for the Lord and for the gospel. See, women who were in this situation would have had a lot of difficult questions that they were dealing with. We see that like in Paul's letters as well. They were wondering things like, 
Now that I'm a Christian and my spouse isn't a Christian, should I leave my spouse? Should I get a divorce and marry somebody who is a Christian? Or, you know, now that I'm a believer and my husband isn't a believer, does that make me now superior to him in some way? Like I should be the one taking charge and telling him what to do and calling the shots and not taking any directions from him? Because what does he know? He's not even a Christian. And Peter says, no, no, don't do that. Rather, win them over, not by shouting them down and lecturing them to death. Win them over with your conduct, he says. See, let them see that becoming a Christian was the best thing that ever happened to you. Make them say, I am so glad that you started following Jesus because ever since you started doing this Jesus stuff, you've changed in a good way. So let them see that following Jesus makes you a better spouse. Why? So that hopefully that will create an openness in their heart to the gospel. See, I don't think this strategy for evangelism is unique or or specific or limited only to wives or even only to marriages. I think that what Peter's been telling us throughout this letter is, you know, here it's the immediate context, but throughout this letter, Peter's been telling us, it's one of his major themes, is he's encouraging us to live beautiful lives that attract people to Jesus as opposed to living ugly lives that repel people from Jesus. And we're called to do that in every context that we find ourselves in. But let me ask you this, how do we do that? How do we live beautiful lives that attract people to Jesus? Do we just fake it till we make it, right? Like put on a show, pretend it's that way, even if it's not until it's maybe hopefully someday is, right? Do we just pretend to be nicer, put on a smiley face, put on a mask, put up a facade so that people think we're better than we actually are? Well, that would be hypocrisy, wouldn't it? So what are we supposed to do? How do we live beautiful lives. Well, Peter tells us here in verses three through six, he tells us, here's how, by cultivating inner beauty, cultivating inner beauty. See, external beauty fades. You remember a few months ago when everybody was downloading that app that would like make you look like 30 years older? I was always worried when like my older friends would take it. I'm like, I don't know, bro, maybe don't even touch that app. Like if you're 70, like it, because it, what it's gonna tell you is, is really gonna be discouraging. But the point is that it was discouraging for all of us, right? Like we look at this app and we're like, oh, so that's what I'm gonna look like in 30 years. Um, but guess what, guys? That's kind of like reality, right? Like that's coming. Like that train is rolling down the tracks and there's no way to stop it. There's no brakes on that train. There's not enough supplements out there to stop that from happening. So you, what you need to do is cultivate an inner beauty that doesn't fade. See, Peter isn't saying that we shouldn't care about how we look outwardly, right? He's not saying just stop showering and stop washing your hair and just look trashy all the time. No, he's saying... As much as you care about your outward appearance, as much energy as you put into exercise and making yourself look good and picking out your clothes and et cetera, give even more attention. How much more important is it for you to give attention to developing that inner person of the heart, the hidden person, he calls it, of the heart, developing the kind of spirit that is pleasing to God? See, that's where true beauty lies. That's where true beauty lies. And that kind of beauty is unfading. It can actually increase with time, whereas every other kind of beauty here on earth decreases with time. You know, what is beauty? As I said, beauty 
according to the Bible, is not only skin deep. Beauty is when you look at something or you hear something and it resonates with your heart and your mind and your soul and you say, that's right, that's good. There's something about that that I want. We're attracted to things that are beautiful. It's built into us. And so where do we get that standard though? Where does that standard of beauty come from? Well, it's built into us, why? Because we're created by God and we're created for God. And so when you think about inner beauty, the kind of beauty that grows over time, those characteristics that are beautiful on the inside, those are all of the characteristics that we see personified in Jesus. We see those personified in Jesus. Love, humility, grace, strength, mercy, generosity. We see all those things in Jesus. And so how do we cultivate those things in our lives so we can become more like him? Well, there's a simple principle, and here's what it is. You will become like what you behold. You become like what you behold. You become like what you behold. Think about it. If you are obsessed with money, right, spend all your time thinking about how to get more money, here's what happens. You become that kind of person, a greedy, stingy person. If you're obsessed with power, you become a harsh demanding person. If you're obsessed with other people's approval of you, then you become anxious and fearful. If you're obsessed with success, then you become busy and restless. But if you fix your eyes upon Jesus, if you become obsessed with him, if you purposefully focus your attention on him and set your gaze upon him, then what kind of person will you become? You become like what you behold. The Bible even tells us this in first, or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says this, that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from glory into greater glory into the same image. So the way that we cultivate beauty in us is by beholding Jesus, by setting him always before our eyes. That's what the psalmist said. He says, I have set the Lord always before my eyes. We behold him in his word. We behold him together in community because somebody else is gonna see him in a little bit different way that you need to see him, a different perspective. See, we cultivate inner beauty by beholding the Lord, fixing our gaze upon him. And as we do that, we will become more and more like him. So the next point, he gives us the final point here, a plan for a thriving marriage, a plan for a thriving marriage. As God designed marriage, God also knows how marriage is designed to work best. Peter lays out three principles for a thriving marriage, three practical guidelines, and here's what they are. Submit, serve, and study. Submit, serve, and study. And for each of these, what you can write down next to it as you take your notes, right? You can write, submit to Jesus and your spouse. Submit to Jesus and your spouse. Serve Jesus and your spouse. Study Jesus and your spouse. Because the foundation of each of these things is that you do them unto the Lord first and foremost, and then out of the outflow of that, you do it also unto your spouse. Here's why. Because God's design for marriage is for your spouse to complement you, not to complete you. Do you know that? God's design is for your spouse to complement you, not to complete you. See, only God can complete you. Only he can make you whole. Only he can fill that void in your soul. And here's the other thing. If you are in Christ, then whatever stage in life you are at, whether you're married or not married or wherever you're at, you are complete in him. 
He completes you. See, our culture paints this picture that there's somebody out there who exists to complete you, to fill up what is lacking in your soul, right? And so what happens is two sinful people come together and they're like desperate people saying, complete me, fulfill me, sustain me, right? And they come to each other expecting the other one to complete them. But what that does, it leads to unfair expectations. It leads to disappointments and it leads to frustrations, so no other person has what you need. That's the facts. No other person has what you need to complete you. That is only found in God. Your spouse can compliment you, but they won't complete you. See, we don't only do this with marriage though, right? We do this with a lot of things. I've seen a lot of people do it with children. They have this child. Now this child exists to complete me, to make up what is lacking in my soul. We do it with friendships. We do it with jobs. We look at that person. We silently say, you exist for me to complete me. Your job is to fulfill what is lacking in me. And that is a huge burden, guys. That is a huge burden to place on the shoulders of a child or on the shoulders of a friend or on the shoulders of a spouse. And they will never be able to live up to it. See, instead, we look to Jesus to complete us, and in each of these areas, this is the outflow of it. It begins first and foremost, primarily with that relationship with God. So we submit to Jesus and to your spouse. Just as Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, Peter calls wives to submit to their husbands. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Because if we were to take this one verse just on its own, by itself, isolate it, we might say, and some people might say, and perhaps rightly so, that what this does is it takes all the decision-making power away from women and gives it to men, which some people might say is not only unfair and wrong, it's even dangerous, it creates a system in which women are less valued, their opinions matter less, they're essentially put at the mercy of men. And some people would say, see, this is the problem with the Bible. This is the problem with people trying to live their lives based on this old book, that the Bible is archaic and it's misogynistic and it subjugates women. Just hang on a second, okay? Before you go there. Because here's the thing, this isn't the only verse about sub subjection or, or submission in the Bible. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say on the topic of submission. Let me, let me just share some of it with you, and hopefully that, that will give us a different way of looking at this. See, the Bible teaches that, is that submission is the general posture. It's the base posture of all Christians all the time. It's the base posture that we always take all the time. The Greek word, we looked at this last week when we talked about this subject in regard to authority, right? It's translated, hupatasso, that word submission in Greek, it's translated, or it's the original word that's translated submission is the word hupatasso, which is a military term for ranking yourself underneath somebody else, aligning yourself, putting yourself underneath somebody else. So the posture, think about it in these terms, it's very you know, vivid. The posture of hupatasso is this posture of rather than trying to position yourself above or over other people, right? In which case you push them down so that you can get on top of them and be over them and stand a little higher. As Christians, we don't do that. As Christians, our posture is we seek to get underneath people so that we can lift them up. So we can lift them up. See, this is what Jesus told his disciples about leadership. He said, you know, the rulers of this world like to lord it over people and domineer over them, but it will not be so amongst you. Instead, in my kingdom, the greatest person will be the one who serves others. It was a whole new paradigm of greatness and a whole new paradigm of leadership. 
And it was one that Jesus modeled himself at the Last Supper, his last meal before he was executed. He took the role of a servant. He put a towel around his own waist and he washed his disciples' feet and he told them, as I have done for you, now I want you to do for each other. See, what Jesus modeled to all of us, what Jesus modeled to his disciples and told them to follow in his footsteps was this idea of hupatasso, this idea of submission, taking the role of a servant, not trying to position yourself above other people to stand on top of them to make yourself look greater, but the posture of getting underneath people and lifting them up. And that's what Jesus did for us, right? And throughout the Old Testament, we are called to do that as we relate to other people. In Philippians chapter two, Paul says, let this same mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, in which he humbly, he humbled himself and he counted others as more significant than himself. And he said, just as Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, even going to the cross, now you do that in relation to how you relate to other people. It was through humbling himself that Jesus showed preference to us. That was how he saved us And it was how he ultimately received greater glory. And the point is this, the way to greater glory, the way to greater joy is not by pushing other people down and getting over them, but it's by getting under them and lifting them up. It's by submission, hupatasso, right? Aligning yourself under people. See, submitting is the basic posture that we as Christians are called to take In every area of life, submitting ourselves to God, submitting ourselves to authorities, and submitting ourselves to one another. See, in Ephesians 5.21, what does he say? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So our general posture that we begin with is this posture of showing preference to one another. But here's the thing. If a husband and wife are a team, and they're both giving preference to one another, both trying to outdo each other and showing honor, what's that going to look like? Well, it's going to be a beautiful thing. It's going to be two people almost like competing with each other to get underneath the other one and lift them up and reveal what's in the other one's heart and and help them go forward and be better and move forward, right? And each of them will be looking for ways to serve the other one and showing preference to the other one. They'll be trying to outdo each other and showing honor. And when it comes to decision-making, it won't be a dictatorship. It'll be a team effort. But here's the thing. In a team of two, well, If we each get one vote, what if there's a situation in which it's a tie? Like it's a cat's game, right? Then what are we gonna do? Well, somebody's gotta be the tiebreaker. And so in a situation like that, the husband should, number one, check his heart and make sure that his motives are pure before God. And then secondly, prayerfully and humbly before God, exercise that tie-breaking vote. You know, I've been married to my wife, Rosemary, now for 15 years. And I can think of a handful of times, less than I can count on one hand, um, in which we have lived this out in our lives, right? Where there's been a a tie-breaking vote, so to say. And I will say it was a a beautiful and a solemn thing. I remember one big decision we made in particular where Rosemary told me, you know what? Like, look, I'm not sure about this thing, but if you believe that this is where God is leading us, then you make the decision and I'll go with it wholeheartedly. And we had been discussing this thing. We'd been praying about it. And it was a hard decision. And she asked me to make the final decision, which was a heavy weight of responsibility to bear. And I made that decision and we locked arms and we moved forward together and never looked back. 
See, we've lived this out in our own lives and it's been beautiful. See, Peter points to Sarah. I love this as an example. I love that he points to Sarah as an example. Here's why, because we always think of Abraham as being this like great hero of the faith. But Peter's like, no, you know who had a lot of faith was Sarah, right? Like her husband shows up one day and he's like, hey, God told me that we're supposed to move. And she's like, where to? And he's like, I don't know. I guess we're just gonna find out when we get there. And she's like, Okay, right? Like, let's go. Like, that takes a lot of faith. Sarah never heard from God. Do you ever think about that? Sarah didn't hear from God. She went along, though, trusting that God would take care of her, even if her husband was off his rocker, even if he was crazy. And Peter says, that is what it looks like to entrust your life over to God, right? Sarah's spirit of faith and entrusting her life fully over to God. So the second thing, serve Jesus and serve your spouse. In verse seven, he tells husbands to show their wives honor or respect. He says, treat them as a partner. He calls them co-heirs of the grace of life. You're partners in seeking God and living this life. So serve God and serve each other, particularly husbands. He says, serve your wives, treat them as partners. And I love that he ends this with like a threat, right? Like he's like, men need uh, just one simple verse, tells them what to do with a threat at the end, right? Like, and if you don't do it, here's what's gonna happen. God's not gonna listen to your prayers. And they're like, really? See, sometimes people ask me, um, why isn't God listening to my prayers? Well, one reason might be because God has already told you what he wants you to do and he's waiting for you to do that. And maybe do that and then come back for more, right? Do that thing he's already told you to do. In this case, serve your wife, honor her, treat her well, lest your prayers be hindered. And finally, this last one, study. Study Jesus and study your spouse. Peter says in verse seven, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So study your spouse, get to know them, get to understand their needs, get to understand their hopes and their dreams and their desires. That takes time and it requires interest, right? It requires effort. It requires you becoming a student of them. See, what Peter's saying here, when he says that the woman is a weaker vessel, he's referring to physical strength. But there's an interesting point that this brings up that we should, we should make here, and that's this. You and your spouse are gonna have different strengths and weaknesses. Man is usually stronger physically, but the woman will have other strengths. And it's like asking a question, you know, hey, which is the better car, like an F-150 or a Ferrari? Well, it kind of depends what you need to do, right? It's kind of hard to say one's better than the other, right? Like if you need to haul a ton of lumber, well, then you want the F-150. But if you need to race to California, then you want the Ferrari, right? Like it depends what you're doing. They both have strengths and they both have weaknesses. And But the thing is, when you bring those two together, the Ferrari and the F-150, and guess what? You've got a powerful team. You can haul bricks and you can race across the country on the highway, right? And so in your marriage, study each other. Other, get to know each other's strengths and weaknesses, not to exploit those weaknesses, uh, but to help your spouse and complement them in the areas where they need strength so that you can be stronger together. And finally, just in conclusion, as we do these things, remember this, marriage is designed by God to point you back to him, to point you back to him. As you serve your spouse, let it remind you of Jesus who served you. As you show preference to one another, let it remind you of Jesus who submitted to the Father and gave preference to you. And as we talk about marriage, we remember that all these things are just a foreshadowing. 
They're a foreshadowing of what is to come. We will be united to God finally and ultimately forever at the great wedding feast of the Lamb, and we will experience unfading beauty forever. And we look forward to that day. And as we do, may we look to him because it is only by his power that we can live any of these things out. Amen? Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you give us instruction. We thank you, Lord, that you have modeled for us what servant leadership, what what acts of loving service look like, what it looks like to submit your life to God and to submit to the Father. Lord, help us that we would submit to you, God, and to one another. Lord, help us that we would serve you, God, and one another. Help us that we would become students of each other, Lord, that we might love each other better and bring honor and glory to you. Lord, help us by your strength, by your spirit within us to live these things out for your glory and for our greater joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.